Good morning. We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians 3. So go ahead and turn there with me if you would. For those of you who don't know who I am or haven't seen me up here before, my name is Mark Russell. I'm a pastoral intern here, uh, and I get the, the opportunity to, to preach the word to you this morning. 2 Thessalonians 3, I'm going to read, uh, starting in verse 1 here, we'll read through 15. Verses 1 to 15. Paul writes, In addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord about you that, you're content, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. So may the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It's not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us in this way. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They're not busy, but busy bodies. And we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Oscar Schindler was an ethnic German and a Catholic after attending a series of, of trade schools, he held a variety of jobs, including working in his father's farm machinery business, opening a driving school, selling government property. Schindler began working uh, with the Office of the Military Foreign Intelligence for the German Armed Forces in 1936, and in February of 1939, he joined the Nazi Party. He was an opportunist, an entrepreneur, a successful businessman with a, a taste for the finer things in life, a very unlikely hero. But his application to the Nazi party was more pragmatic than ideological alignment. In fact, he, Schindler himself, became a leader of some factories and work camps, and, and he used his position and resources not to continue torturing Jewish workers under the harsh conditions that they'd become accustomed to under the Nazi regime, but instead to provide a haven. They'd be better respected and cared for. During his time, he repeatedly used his financial resources to, to bribe officials in the SS and the German forces into letting Jews be transferred out of the ghetto and into his factories where they would be at less risk. Instead of being sent to death camps, they would be sent to his factories under his supervision. It's said that by the end of the war, he had saved somewhere between 900 and 1,200 Jews from torture, humiliation, 
and an inevitable death under the Nazi regime. But once a wealthy and powerful man, he was now penniless. In 1993, Steven Spielberg produced a film about uh, this man's life. Many of you, you'd probably, probably recognize it. It's called Schindler's List. And if, you, if you've seen it, you'll remember that final scene where uh, the situation has now become dangerous for, for all of them. Some, some higher Nazi officials, they now kind of know what's been going on here, and they've ordered all the Jews there to be killed. Uh, Schindler and his wife themselves are even going to be criminals. So they all have to leave, and they, they begin to say goodbye. And as they say goodbye, Schindler is presented with a gold ring from one of the Jewish factory men that he's rescued. And it's in this moment that you see it just just hit his face. <laughs> you see all the emotions start rushing in as the, the recognition of what's happened here it begins to sink in before they have to leave. Only, it's not the emotions that we might think, right? Tears of joy uh, for all the lives that have been saved. No, all that Oscar Schindler can think, seem to think about in that moment is not the 1,000 people that he saved standing right in front of him. It's all the people that he couldn't help. After having spent everything, after having given everything. He looks at the ring that he's just received and, and all he can say is this, this could have been one more person. He looks at his car and he says, this car, this car could have saved 10 more people. <laughs> Takes off his Nazi lapel badge and he says, this, this could have been another two people, one at least. And this man, having worked his entire life to build a mountain of resources, only to, to spend them all to save other people, falls on the floor in tears over the recognition that he could have done more. He could have done just a little bit more. Christian, I wonder how many of us here, having worked hard for what we have, <laughs> for the money we have, for the things we own, for the, the influence that we have in the world, ever look around it at all distraught that we haven't helped more people with it? How often does that happen in the Christianity that we find ourselves in? How many of us do that? What we're going to see in, in 2 Thessalonians 3 this morning is Paul brings up our work. <laughs> Not our works, our work. The, the vocational aspect of our lives or the, the means by which we're called to provide for ourselves and, and other people and feels really random coming out of the heels of the last few weeks, right? Uh, with everything going on in these letters, because uh, we've been talking about end times, right? Eric's up here talking about tribulational, millennial eschatology, right? Last week, we talked about this man of lawlessness, and, and we roll into chapter three here, and Paul is just kind of like, uh, yeah, so since all of that is true, get to work. <laughs> if you're just casually reading through it, it it really doesn't make sense how it all fits in. But here's the thing. Here's what we need to understand this morning is that the reason that this topic doesn't make sense to us in the light of everything else that's going on, the reason that it feels random and, and kind of confusing is that we don't think about our work the way that Paul does. When we hear work, it sparks all kinds of things in our minds that are just completely different than how the Bible thinks about our work, and that's why it just doesn't fit here with everything else going on. So we need to see what it says. Here's what I want to prove to you this morning. It's what I want us to walk away with this morning, 
clearly from 2 Thessalonians 3. You can hold me to this, all right? This is our, this is our goal. To convince you from the text that your vocational work is about your love for God and your love for neighbor. Your vocational work, it's about your love for God and your love for neighbor. That's what Paul is going to show us this morning. Paul, Paul's going to relate this idea to us in, in three ways, and he's going to do it by having us consider these three things. A future deliverance, a past endurance, and a present diligence. You guys like that alliteration? I was pretty pumped about that. A future deliverance, a past endurance, and a present diligence. These three ideas, they're all working in tandem with this main idea that our work is not about us, but rather it's about God and it's about our neighbor. So how does he do that? What is the, what is the future deliverance and how does it relate to our work now? What is the past endurance that he brings up and what's it have to do with my work right now? What's the present diligence? How does that factor in? These are the, the things we're going to look at and the questions that we want to answer this morning. So let's get in it. We'll look uh, at the first two briefly, and we'll spend most of the time on the third one here. Uh, the first thing Paul draws our attention to, it's a, it's a future deliverance of God for his people. That's his prayer in verse 1, if you look there. Notice the means by which this deliverance is going to come. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. What happened with you, Thessalonians, the way the, the gospel was received by you? Do you remember that? In 1 Thessalonians 1.6, he says, You welcomed the message with joy from the, from the Holy Spirit, in spite of severe persecution. You remember how that happened. We want that to keep happening. We want the word to continue to go out, to continue to spread and be honored, just as it was with you when we brought it your way. He goes on and says, And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. You can imagine this is quite the prayer coming off of uh, chapter 2 and everything going on there. <laughs> we won't go back there too deep, but you'll remember uh, Paul is talking not only about this great man of lawlessness that's going to show up on the scene one day, but also the mystery of lawlessness that he says is already at work. And we don't have to think too hard about uh, what that is, I don't think. I think we see it all around us every day. But the issue with the ones in lawlessness now is that they don't accept truth and they believe what is false. Paul then contrasts them with the church that he's writing to and, and us, of whom he says have been chosen for sanctification in the Lord through belief in the truth. <laughs> What's the point here? Well, it's this. God's deliverance from evil comes through his word. It comes through his word going out. Today, here and now, it's going to look just what it looked like at the church in Thessalonica. It's people going to places that have not received the gospel, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, living the gospel. And that gospel, based on its hearing, being received in faith. It's lawless people being transformed by the Spirit of God through the word and being brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's all it is. Friends, we can't forget that some of, those, some of the most radical evils that we've seen in the history of mankind have only been abolished in places where the gospel has flourished. 
And that's part of what Paul prays would happen here. It's that the word would go out. But it's not all of it because that same word that's going out now and and transforming people from lawlessness to righteousness right now, that same word will one day come and judge all of those who have yet come to faith. Notice the play on words here. He says, not all, talking about the evil and, and the wicked men here, not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will not leave the guilty who remain in evil and wickedness and lawlessness. He, he won't leave them unpunished. So we want deliverance now. We want the word to work now salvifically. And, and the scriptures give us hope that it will, but it's going to work later too, just in a much different way. Remember Isaiah 11, verse 4, it talks about this Davidic king who's going to strike the land with discipline from his mouth. <laughs> He's going to kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Later in Isaiah 49, too, that that Davidic king, the Messiah, he speaks and says of himself, he, the Lord Yahweh, made my words like a sharp sword. It's no surprise then that when Jesus shows up on the scene in John 1, he's declared to be the very word of God. (laughs) And later when we see him back on the scene in Revelation 1, the picture John gives us is him standing with a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Remember again in chapter 2, when that lawless one is finally revealed, it says the Lord Jesus will destroy him with what? With the breath of his mouth. It's the means by which his judgment will be executed. Christian, God will work in the world through his word, both for the salvation of sinners and for the judgment of the unrighteous. And Paul here directs our attention to both. What does this have to do with our present work in this life? Well, we know how the story ends. (laughs) We may be living in the middle of the book, but we've already read the last page. And so right now, we walk in the certainty of our victory over the enemy and sin by being diligent in our service to others. But in the same vein, we understand that while we who are in Christ will experience a great deliverance for all those still living in lawlessness, that will not be such a great day. We believe that for those outside of Christ, something far worse than a physical death in a Nazi concentration camp is coming. And so right now, we leverage everything that we can right now in this life so that even one more soul might be saved from that terrible day. It's the certainty of God's future deliverance and judgment that gives us hope to work hard now to accomplish his purposes now. The second thing that he'd have us contemplate here is a past endurance. Verses 4 and 5. He says, We have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do what we command. This is referencing what's, what's coming later, so just hold on to that. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. And so before we tell you what we want from you, <laughs> Before we give you the commands, please don't miss, we want to direct your hearts to two things. God's love and Christ's endurance. We want you to contemplate the past endurance of Christ on your behalf. This endurance that Paul speaks about, it was his his living in this very world of lawlessness, yet maintaining faith and holiness. Of walking in the Spirit, never wavering in his faith. All of which we know eventually 
culminated in the cross. In a lot of ways, the same endurance that we're called to now walk in today. But, but the way it's written, it's actually not really meant to direct your mind to two things, but rather, rather one thing. Because for Paul, God's love and Christ's endurance are not, they're not two separate things, right? They're so interwoven that when you think of one, you can't help but think of the other. And so in much the same way, if I were to stand here and, and randomly uh, say, peanut butter, <laughs> the first thing that would come to your mind is what? Somebody. Jelly, thank you. If I said salt, you'd think pepper. <laughs> if I said Ohio State football, you'd think greatness, dominance. <laughs> or conversely, if I said Cleveland Browns football, you would think uh, disappointment. <laughs> Pain, shame, Lord have mercy. When Paul speaks of one here, he speaks of both. Hear me now, it is true that nowhere do we see God's love more clearly than the cross. And it's true that nowhere do we see the cross more clearly than through the lens of God's love. Paul brings them both up because to bring one of them up is to necessarily invoke the other. Well, what does this have to do with our work? How does, the, how does the endurance of Christ relate to our vocational work now? Well, it's something we've already alluded to. It's our, it's our work, not our works. Talking about a works righteousness here. We're, we're free from that. that. Christ's work on the cross, it accomplished our salvation for us, so we no longer have to work for favor with God. This reality, it doesn't lead to apathy or, or idleness towards him, no. Instead, because of what he's done, we're now free from sin and free to work diligently for the good of other people. Having once been enslaved to sin, the world, it now becomes an arena for service and for good works. And, and the form of our service to others is the exact same as the form of Christ's work for us. It's cruciform. <laughs> it's the death of ourselves for the good of other people. And so having considered these things, having considered the future deliverance that's going gonna, gonna to come by God's word, both salvifically through the rescue of sinners and, and also in this future judgment when all those who remain faithless are destroyed, having considered the love of God seen through Christ's endurance in this world, culminating in his death on the cross, after, after considering those things, Christians, what do we do now? <laughs> we get to work. This is the third thing that Paul wants us to consider, and it's where we're going we're gonna to spend the rest of our time this morning. Paul wants us to be concerned about the present diligence in our work in light of these realities. This present diligence is discussed in verse, verses 6 to 15, where it's, it's, it's very clear that Paul takes head on this issue that there are some who are not working and who are living off of the means of other people. This present diligence is demonstrated in two ways in our text this morning, and it's seen most clearly in the fact that you'll see, you'll see two commands given in the text to two different groups of people. Two commands, you can see them easily marked off with the same phrase in verses 6 and verses 12, where Paul says, now we command you. In verse 6, the command, it's given directly to, to the majority of the church, church of faithful people who he says they're already doing what he commands, 
To them he says, now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition that you receive from us. This is the primary command given in the text. It's the command that is actually given to the readers of the letter because from there you'll see he goes on to give his reasoning for that command. So that's the first command that we see. But let's just stop here for a moment um, and let me kind of drop this bomb on you for a second. Because there's something we need to understand something uh, about this command before we move to the second. And before we really look at the meat of what Paul says about our work. Uh, what Paul says here, that's church discipline language that he's using in the verse. <gasps> I know. I know. You might be you might be unsure about that, but it's, it's not the only place he uses that kind of language. It's also in verse 10 where he says, In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. Now, it's a play there. He should not literally eat because he's not providing anything for himself to eat. But it's also a play on one of the pictures and, and descriptions of a local church that we see in the New Testament. It's a fundamental thing that the church does. We, we, we break bread together. It's the Lord's Supper. That's, that's fellowship language, this idea of eating together. If he's not going to work to provide a place at, at his own table for himself and for other people, there won't be a place at this one for him either. That's the idea. You also see in verse 14, he says, if anyone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take note of them. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Again, the, the disassociation of someone from the community of the church, it's, not, it's no casual thing to say or do. Putting them out of fellowship with the church, that's church discipline. And, and so what we see before we really get going is that for, for some reason Paul views this issue of idleness and, and not working to support yourself as a fundamental issue to the gospel. So much so that if you, if you fail in this area and you remain unrepentant in it, you should not be a part of the church. And hear me, just a caution, and maybe, maybe a quick sidebar here, because I know, um, I, I know that this topic can cause a lot of emotions to swell up in our heart, rightfully so, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, this idea of discipline, it is not for the weak Christian. <laughs> It's not for the person who maybe just has some ignorance in their sin and needs, needs correction. When we're talking about discipline in this way, we're, we're talking specifically about the person who is more committed to their sin than they are to Christ. It also should not be done alone. <laughs> and it should be done not vindictively, but redemptively. It is an absolute last resort to bring somebody to repentance. That's the goal. And so I know... As we read it, it can feel, it can feel harsh at first. We, we have to remember these things and these, these biblical truths in this area before we kind of let those emotions distract us from what the, the truth is of, of God's Word. And Paul calls the faithful people in the church to fulfill the responsibility of keeping that church pure by keeping these people out. And so now, while we, we don't yet even see anything that he has to say about why you should work or how you should work or, or why the stakes for this one are so high this morning, we, we, see, we see that they are. We see that the stakes 
on this issue in Paul's mind are extremely high. Like I said, this here, it's, it's, it's actually the primary command of the text. These are the primary people he's talking to who are doing this well. And we can see that just by comparing the first command to the second one. And so jump ahead for a second with me, if you would. Read, read in verse 12. This command, it's directed not towards the people who are doing what Paul's commanded. It's directed towards the, the idle ones who aren't. He says there, For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They're not busy, but busy bodies. <laughs> and here it is now. Now we command such people, okay, so the ones who are idle here, not busy, we command such people, we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus to work quietly and provide for themselves. And you just notice the very impersonal language of this verse compared to the one in verse 6, right? Verse 6, we command you, brothers. <laughs> verse 12, still talking directly to that same group of people, says, we command and exhort such people. Paul here, he, he ain't even going to talk to them. <laughs> These idle people not working, living off of other people, he's not even going to speak to them in this letter. He's just going to talk about them in front of them. You know what I'm saying? Like, dang, Paul, it's like that? It's like that here. It reminds me of that moment when you're just kind of standing there awkwardly listening to your mom go off on your sibling for how they're laughing and encouraging your misbehavior, <laughs> right? They're over here getting a tongue lashing because they're laughing and encouraging you to act like a fool. And she's over there talking about how you've been doing this and you've been doing that, and when she's done with him, this is what she's going to come over here and do to you. And it's not like you're in a different room not hearing what's going on, told about it later. No, you're standing right there hearing everything she's saying like, this is, this is about him right now, but it's really about me, right? And so he wants them to work, but he's not, he's not even going to deal with them directly because his primary command and, and thrust of this chapter is, is actually that they would be disciplined if they fail to be faithful. But it does raise the question, why would he want to discipline them over this issue? And it's here that we have to remember that this, this idea of our uh, vocational work, it's about something bigger than ourselves for Paul. Something much larger is at stake than just, than just working for ourselves, and it's something that we've already suggested this morning. It's that our vocational work is about our love for God and our love for neighbor. That's what's at stake this morning. Look back at Paul's words, specifically in verses 7 and 8. He says, for you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And notice Paul's language here. When, when answering the question about why this idleness is such a, such a grave offense, the first thing he says is, you yourselves know how you're supposed to imitate us. We weren't idle among you. <laughs> We labored and toiled, working night and day so that we wouldn't burden any of you. It's the same exact language that we see him use to describe his ministry to them in the first letter. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians. First go to, to chapter 1. Look in verses 5 and 6. It's there that he, that he writes, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, 
but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. (laughs) Sound familiar? We've already talked about how our text is ultimately concerned with the word going out. Verse 6, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord. When in spite of severe persecution, you welcome the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Okay, so they, they receive the word that comes by the Spirit. Now they've become imitators, not only of Paul, but of Christ. That's why he says in verse 4 of our text, they're already doing what they've commanded. Please keep doing that. But how specifically did they imitate Paul? This is where the connection to our text gets, gets really clear, because look at how Paul describes his ministry to them. Turn over to chapter 2. In verses 7 to 9, he says, Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you. As a nurse nurtures her own children, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not the gospel of God, a.k.a. word going out, but also our own lives. Because you had become dear to us. What did that look like? Well, he, he explains, for you remember our labor and our hardship. Brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. Does that sound familiar? This is exactly how Paul, in our text, second letter, chapter 3, says you already know how you should imitate us. You know that we weren't idle among you. No, far from it. We worked, and we worked hard. We labored and toiled, working night and day so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. And why? Well, it it was not for himself. It was for their benefit. Ultimately, so the gospel could be preached and displayed to them. Paul's point here is that you need not just give your breath in the proclamation of the gospel. You need to spend your entire life in displaying it. You may be thinking, what do you mean, Paul, when you say you, you gave him your life? What are you talking about there? He, he means everything. <laughs> he worked hard night and day. He was grinding so that he had something of himself to give them. His, his time, his money, his influence, his connections, his knowledge, his, his entire life. Some of you are thinking, okay, I don't, I don't know if that's all here, right? It's clear that Paul, he's concerned with not being a burden, but, um, but, but does it really suggest that he was giving all those things to them? That's fair. I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you that. But I'll raise you in Acts chapter 20 where Paul again describes his ministry with much of the same language saying this. He says, you yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way I've shown you imitation that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of Jesus when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Friends, This was Paul's ministry. This is how Paul came to Thessalonica. This is how he ministered to them. This is how they imitated them, and it's how he praised the word would would continue going out, not just by the preaching of the word, but rather in tandem with God's people, living that word out in the real world, in the lives of other people. Paul was not content here to just preach the gospel in word only. He wasn't content to just have a conversation on the plane and check his evangelistic box off, as good as that may be. 
He wasn't content to just stand on the city streets at a big event and and hand out gospel tracts, (laughs) as good of a thing as that may be. Paul did not just bring them the gospel in word only. He brought to them his entire self. For him, every aspect of his life was a means by which he could use to, to minister the gospel. And he gave it to them freely. This is how we can say, you, you didn't just imitate me, you imitated Christ also. I'll just be honest with you this morning. <laughs> it took me a long time to sit and wrestle with this text because I, I just could not get it. Um, I knew that work and, and supporting yourself in this idea was... It was the main idea of what he's talking about, but, but I just, I couldn't grasp why it was such a big deal. I couldn't understand why it was here in the text, how it related to everything else going on, until finally I started to see some of these connections to how Paul uh, talks about his own ministry and what his heart is in that, and then here's what I realized. <laughs> you ready for this? This is what I realized. I realized that I don't think about my work like a Christian should think about their work. I realize that I've grown up in a context and and been shaped by a culture that does not think about work the way the Bible talks about work. Here's some examples. Let's just see how many of these may may resonate with you this morning. I realize I often think of my work as a way of identifying myself. Uh, When you meet somebody new, what is one of the very first questions that you ask them? What do you do for work? It's embedded in our culture. We identify ourselves by our work. I realize that I often think about my work as as a status symbol among other people. I realize that I often think about my work as a means of of getting nice things or having fun experiences, and I, I work hard towards those ends. I realize I think about my work as a way of competing with other people sometimes. I compare myself to others with my work. <laughs> Amen, somebody. <laughs> Is it just me up here this morning? I don't think so. I can't help but think that, that this is one of the many ways that the Christian mind in our context just absolutely ceases to exist. What does that mean? It's that we don't think like a Christian when it comes to this topic. We grow up in the world and we're discipled by the world and how we think about and relate ourselves to our work. But unfortunately, it, it, it even runs deeper than that because it's not just how we think about our work in general as part of our lives. It's, it's also how we think about the resources that we work for. It's how we think about our time. It's how we think about our money. For Paul, the issue is not just that you get a job. <laughs> Sweet. The job itself is a means to an end for him. Because again, for Paul... None of it is really about him. It's about God's mission on earth to those people around him. Uh, Remember the imagery back in the first letter. He talks about working and earning a means of provision, uh, enabling you to care for people how? Like a nurse nurses her own children. (laughs) Later he says it's like a father with his own children. Um, If you've had kids, you know... They are not naturally the most considerate of your uh, time, money, and, 
and energy, right? Uh, they just kind of show up on the scene looking at you like, what, what do you think you're about to do? <laughs> right? no. Oh, you thought, you thought you were about to go over there and go to, no, 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 come, come here. I need a bottle, <laughs> right? You, I, I don't care that you've been wanting to do that thing. You haven't been able to because you've been holding me and you've been feeding me bottles. I want a bottle now, <laughs> right? That's how it goes. But what, is, what does the parent do in that moment? They put down what they're doing. They, they give up everything that they might be concerned about. And they go give that kid the bottle. And over and over and over again, they, they sacrifice themselves and what they want and what they may need in that moment so they can nurture that child. They give themselves freely over and over and over again, even when they feel like they don't have much to give. And that's the image that Paul gives us for our ministry. Uh, Luther, Luther says this, he says, From faith there flows a love and a joy in the Lord. From love there proceeds a joyful, willing, and free mind that serves the neighbor and takes no account of gratitude or ingratitude, praise or blame, gain or loss. We don't serve others with an eye toward making them obligated to us. Nor do we distinguish between friends and enemies or anticipate their thankfulness or ingratitude. <laughs> Rather, we freely and willingly spend ourselves in all that we have. I can't help but wonder if part of the reason that, that we see so much uh, just goofiness in our Christian circles on the topic of, of how exactly to help people who are in need is because so many Christians have just been content to just share the gospel and word only, but won't sacrifice an ounce of themselves in the lives of people. Please tell me, believer, if, if, you're, if you're truly contemplating Christ as Paul's commanded us to in, uh, this morning, truly considering him hanging naked on, on a ghetto cross, giving every single bit of himself for me and for you, and then truly contemplating the fact that one day he will come back, only not in humility, but in glory and power, with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, ready to save you and me, but judge every single person still stuck in their lawless and faithful ways. Tell me, what in your life is so valuable that you worked so hard for that you would not give so that even one more person would be saved from that day? Well, what in your life is so valuable that you can't leverage that to show them the gospel tangibly? That they might know Christ and then, and then begin to do the same thing in the lives of other people. We paint an anemic gospel when we're unwilling to give ourselves freely for the sake of the gospel going out in the lives of sinners. It may be the right and the true and the sound gospel, but it lacks the substance in people's lives that's meant to come with it. Instead, what the Bible would demand of us is that we would imitate Paul in the way that we think about our work. Not as an ultimate means of our, of our comfort, safety, and status, but of ministering the gospel to other people. That's how Paul says he ministered to these young believers. That's how he says they've begun to imitate him. 
And above all, it's the way that they, that they imitate Christ by giving their entire lives over for the good of other people. Now, this love for neighbor demonstrated by, by freely giving our entire lives for their good, it's not in any way disconnected from our love for God. There's not really any trickier, clever, uh, philosophical connection to make here. Much like the ideas of, of God's love and Christ's endurance to the cross, they're, they're inextricably connected. So are the ideas of loving God and loving neighbor. In a lot of ways, you, you demonstrate your love for God by your love for neighbor. The scripture often puts these two things together. An easy one, I think just quickly in 1 John four twenty, he says, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. <laughs> For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he can't see. That's how the Bible talks about these ideas. Don't miss the simple fact that our, our jobs and our diligence in them, it allows us to provide uh, not only the basic things that we need, but also that other people in the world need. It's in that sense we can say that our, our work involves us inherently caring for God's creation, even if it's just the common graces of life that he gives to everybody. This is what Luther meant when he referenced our, our vocations as the masks of God. So we encounter the baker who prepares and supplies our bread, but behind this baker is a gracious creator, faithfully providing for his creatures. Our work then, it has an inherent dignity and value because it is God's chosen means for providing for his creation. Even the small, everyday, mundane job that we do day in and day out, they're means of God's provision for us. So we can love him well by carrying out those tasks faithfully and diligently. It's because of all of this, everything we've just said, Paul says, if they will not work, let them not eat. Can you see now why this is such a big issue for Paul? Can you see now why the stakes are so high on this issue? After all, ask yourself, if everything that we've said is true, what kind of God would just leave us in sin in this area? If we think God will go to such great lengths to work out other sins in our lives, why would we be surprised that he'd do so on this one too? And I understand it may feel, it may feel harsh. Sometimes the Lord's humbling and discipline of us through, through his word and also through the use of other people in our lives. Carrying out commands like this, it can feel heavy. But understand that that bruising is for our good. Because here's the thing, he would rather save you and have you stumble into heaven, <laughs> bruised, bloody, and broken, than to just leave you as you were, ushered into hell, fully clothed and in good health, but completely grasping onto your sin. Worship team, you can come up. I know this is, not, this is not an easy word 
It's not even really a fun one. <laughs> but it's clear. This is what we're called to as God's people. And we don't aim for, demand perfection in this life for ourselves or for other people because we can't be perfect as much as we'd like to be. But we can be healthy. And this morning, I want us to be healthy in this area. There are people right now all across the world, but also, also right here in our own com- communities, in Holmes County, Ohio, who need us to be healthy in this area, who need people that are willing to leverage every single part of our lives that we can muster up so that the gospel would be made real to them. That's Paul's desire and prayer in this text. That's what the Bible would have of us. And that's our prayer this morning too. Pray with me as we close and we'll finish in song. Father, we thank you once again for your grace to us, Lord, that uh, in every, every bit of our imperfection and even, um, even our motives, Lord, your grace runs deep. We're thankful for that. We trust in that. We rest in that. But Lord, as we've said, help us to not uh, use that as a means of, of apathy or of laziness, of selfishness. Help us to understand our responsibility here and now to walk, to walk the way you did, to follow in your pattern, Lord, to freely give every single bit of ourselves for the sake of other people. God, we want your word to go out. We want to preach it well. We want to be in the lives of other people. I pray that your spirit would do a work in us this morning. Lord, we ask for those opportunities. We ask that you'd help us see them. We ask that you'd help us to to navigate them well. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.